We are in a sermon series this month, uh, walking through what does it mean to be one church. It will culminate as a, a, a service where we both campuses worship together at AI on the 5th of May. And we've been working hard to figure out a, a language to talk about our relationship to, as, as uh, two local church communities working together. And one thing that's left surfaced as being pretty important along the way is establishing a set of criteria or distinctives that help us understand this is what we are together. This is the things we have in common. So we're going to talk about some of those. There's seven of them that we came up with here. Um, And we'll be talking about them over the next four weeks. You know, part of me wants to... uh, I know that this at some level feels like a wire diagram of a church for some of y'all, I pray your patience and uh, that I think this is important for us long term. And I think it's every bit as biblical as uh, talking about David and Goliath. So, um, but we're working through uh, these ideas. And this morning, we're just going to focus our attention on the first two. Uh, What does it mean that we are Christ-centered beneath the authority of the Bible? Every campus that would be part of the Grove would be that way. What does it mean that we all confess the same theology and remain in association with the Southern Baptist Convention? That's the, the goal for today. And so if you would, please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. And we'll be there. Every uh, message in this series is walking through um, a different letter of Paul. And we're kind of reading them as a letter. If you're using one of our Bibles, it's page 817. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, you certainly feel welcome to keep that as a gift. Just read it. <clears throat> so uh, the, the theme, uh, the, the vision theme in all of the slides and throughout the season is that of trees, right? Where the idea we're talking about a grove church as a name, a church as being a, a tree, a community of churches as being a grove. So you can imagine, especially being springtime with trees in bloom or coming into bloom, Everywhere I go, I'm thinking of trees this and trees that and, and this sermon series. And I got myself to thinking this week, in light of Colossians 2, of something that happened. I, I still remember this distinctly. It happened to me as a boy. We, did, we lived down in the southeast, um, Florida, Virginia, and then we would always visit family in Louisiana. And as a boy, uh, we would be driving across country on I-10 or I-95 or I-75. I don't remember which one necessarily. But we're driving across country. And we didn't have I, this, iPads. And back then, flat screen TVs, we didn't have any of that. We had a window. You want to watch a movie, you watch the window. You watch the story of North Carolina unfold in front of you. You know? And on the way back, you can watch it again. That was... That was, you know, I mean, we're all, we remember that, right? And my brother and I and my sister, we didn't really get along, so the window was the best thing to do anyway. And so my head was up against the window, just kind of doing, you know, vibrating as we're heading on down to Louisiana. And I remember seeing this vast woodland of vibrant green, like bursting life. Woods, forests. It was um, different than the normal woods on the highway. And it was, it was idyllic in the sense that it didn't have the stark relief of branches jutting out and 
and gaps. It was like a flowing blanket of trees. It was just smooth. It was beautiful. Um, and I, I was just noticing it. It was an expanse of forest. Just went on. It just picked up and went on and on. And I was I remember just noticing it out the window. And my brother said, "Wow, look at all the kudzu." You know, kudzu. But down south, kudzu, kudzu is a is a is a parasitic vine that destroys forests. That's 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 kudzu. So I was looking at something, thinking, "Look at this vibrant trees. Look at this beautiful forest." What the reality, what I was seeing, is look at a dead forest that is being consumed by a vine. The blanket, all the smooth, the edges being smoothed, was this blanket of kudzu over the top canopy of the trees that was slowly over the years consuming the woodland beneath it. Until the, if you ever see the end of kind of a kudzu forest, you just see spikes of kudzu because the branches have all been worn away and it's just a trunk with kudzu. And this morning we're going to be reading a, a, a Paul exhort the, the Colossian Christians, the church there, to make sure that they have Christ at the center of their faith. Make sure that they focus on the heart of the Christian faith, that being the work of Christ and his work for us, because no matter what happens, there's always going to be new ideas, fine-sounding arguments is what he's going to say. They're going to try to creep in, and they're going to look vibrant, and they're going to appear to have life, and from a distance, a church who takes it on might even look healthy. But the reality is, is they will come, and they will take over the community, and they will destroy it, like kudzu. The hope is, is that we would grow to be a healthy tree, deeply rooted in the Lord, that would have branches and expanse, and, and there's, there's always things that want to attach themselves to us that speak a different word. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we, we look here in Colossians chapter 2. So what I'll do is I'll read the first uh, five or so verses. And um, we'll talk about those and then we'll set a little pattern here. Look at chapter 2 verse 1. Now Paul is writing from prison to this church. And he's never, he did not plant this church. I don't even know if he's ever actually been to the actual recipients. He's been in this region, okay? This is a region of churches. But this is what he says. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not met me personally, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, for though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Paul starts with a goal here in the second chapter. His goal is that you could know the mystery of God, namely Christ. This is what he says here. He says, I want you to be encouraged in heart. I want you to be united in love. I want you to have complete understanding. And he says, and the way that that's going to happen is that you might know the mystery of God. And this mystery is namely Christ. He's saying the mystery of God is Christ. 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, is what he says. Not some of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ isn't just pretty good. He's saying it, Christ is the door into the treasure room of God. That Christ is the path into the word. That if this is the treasure of God, if this is where God's truth for us lies, and, and in it we mine this for the riches of God, he's saying that the way you would understand the word is through Jesus Christ. And I'm saying this because we are not simply a church that is beneath the authority of the Bible. We are a Christ-centered church beneath the authority of the Bible, which is different. Many people can possess the Word of God and not read the Word of God well. In the sense of God's revelation to us is given to us to be understood through Jesus Christ. And that's his hope here. We find this, I'm just trying to think of recent weeks when you might have heard this before. Last week in Ephesians 2, the church was described as a building being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with who is the chief cornerstone? Christ. It's that same idea happening of and like the treasure being the word or the revelation of God, but Christ being the gateway into that, the mystery that unlocks it, the key that gets us in. It's the same thing. There's the foundation of the prophets and the apostles and the cornerstone. The whole building stands and is understood by Christ. Another way of appreciating this or seeing it is two weeks ago on Easter Sunday, we were discussing these followers of Christ on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus joins them and is walking, and they're confused and frustrated because the person that they had had so much hope in died on the cross. He was convicted, and he suffered, and he was rejected by men, and it was confusing to them. They had begun to think he was the Messiah, and Jesus walks, and how does he explain the word to them? It says, and he began with Moses and the prophets, and began to show everything that had been said about him. That's, that's, that's because Christ is the mystery of God that's been revealed to us. Earlier in the first chapter, just look at this, verse 27 or 26. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but has now been disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's our hope. And we can have the word, and we can have the scriptures, but if we're not understanding it, if we're not pivoting around the person of Jesus Christ, we're going to get something out of balance. And this is what we see in verse 4. So he says all of that, 1 through 3, that there's the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now look at the fourth verse. Why is he, why is he encouraging the church to be this way? Look at verse 4. He says, I'm telling you this so that no one would deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. He's saying this because he knows. He knows that arguments are going to come along that are going to try to take Jesus out of the sinner and interpret the faith in a different way. And we understand that this is going to happen from outside the church. Obviously, those outside the church have a different word for Jesus. Right? They have a different thing to say, and they have different things in the center of their life. But Paul is just as concerned with those who claim to be inside the church. Let's, let's watch him say it again here. Look at verse 6. Now, I'm going to read 6 through 8. I want you to listen for the same pattern of put Christ in the center... And in doing that, you will guard yourself from a false teaching. 
okay? In other words, be a tree that is guarded against some kind of parasitical idea. Let me read 6 through 8. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Did you see the pattern? You who have received Christ, just listen to the language. You've received Christ, continue in him, rooted and built up in him. Do you see how central Paul is saying that Christ has to be, it's not simply an idea is what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying you need to believe that Jesus Christ hung on the cross for your sins and died and rose on the third day. He's he's not saying that. He's saying that Jesus Christ needs to be your worldview, the way you understand life. It's not simply a fact. It's the thing that orients your life. Continue in him, he says, rooted and built up in him. And why? So that no one takes you captive with a hollow philosophy built on the human traditions and the basic principles of this world. He's talking about a worldview. This is, this is important that we can be in the church and we can be of the church and we can have, uh, have all the appearance of being a church and even talk about Jesus and even say accurate things about Jesus. And yet if he is not central to the way we think and act, he's not center. We're not rooted in him. To be in the faith, right? If it's true for the church, it's true as an individual. Just listen. To be in the faith, if you want to call yourself in the faith, what what you're saying to the Lord is, Lord, I'm desiring to bring Christ into into the center of my life. I seek because he has saved me from my sins, because he has placed his spirit in my life, because there's no longer any condemnation on my shoulders, I desire to fully represent him in everything I do. I desire to think about him in the ways that I go and come and the ways I think, the ways I, I, in my, you know, when I exercise and when I go to school, whatever I'm doing, it's being shaped through the lens, the prism of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be Christ-centered. You can have a Bible and know it cover to cover and not be Christ-centered. You can believe it and not be Christ-centered. In fact, I think Paul is generally addressing the church, the claimed church, those who claim to be in. So here's the Christian worldview is Jesus Christ is in the center and through him we understand all of God's word which equips us and deeply roots us and makes us strong to bear against the false ideas, the the things that want to attach themselves to our life and tear us down. That's, That's the idea. Well, competing with that is obviously a secular worldview. So the secular worldview doesn't care what you think about Jesus as long as you don't think that Jesus is Lord. You can think whatever you want about Jesus as long as he's not Lord, as long as he doesn't have authority, because the secular worldview says that you are the Lord of your life. You are where authority is derived. That that. In you, you should continue fervently. Since you have become the Lord of your life, you should be rooted in yourself and built up in yourself and growing. That's why people say you just got to have faith. They have no problem with faith. They just have a problem with where you anchor your faith. 
I mean, if you're, if you're here and you're not in Christ, my hunch is you're the Lord of your life. And what would bother you most about anything that's being said today is that you're being challenged to say that that is a false and hollow philosophy. That's kudzu. You have the appearance of a vibrant life. You can fake it in public, but the reality is, is over the years, you will be a dead tree under a parasitic canopy, a false lie. In the church, it feels different. So within the church, it's not so much that we're saying that Christ can't be Lord. We're just mistaking different things for the sinner. Let me, let me read for you an example in the second chapter. So verses 9 through 15, Pastor Terry read during worship, which does the pattern again. So this pattern of Jesus Christ is the mystery, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So don't be deceived by a fine-sounding argument. And then the pattern we find later, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue being rooted and built up in him so that you're not taken away by a hollow philosophy. The same thing happens here. It's just it's much longer. So 9 through 15 is the Jesus side. For Christ is all the fullness of the deity in bodily form. And he goes on and on and on until he drops. Just look at 15, by the way. Do I have time? I do. Look at 15. It is such a... Uh, I'll, here's a confession. I'm a, I am a Christian rap fiend. Okay, Lecrae, Trip Lee, The Flame, Ambassador, you name them. I love them. I consume them. I think they are some of the finest theologians of the church right now, and they, they spur us on, and they are masters of lyrics. <laughs> Paul, Paul, if he was today, someone would say, he just dropped it right here. Just listen to how he twists the ideas. Just listen. Okay, listen. Do you remember a few weeks ago, just a few weeks ago on Friday, we were dealing with the fact that men were driving nails through the arms of our Savior, okay? That's what we were dealing with, right? This is what Paul says, talking about our sin. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Who was nailed to the cross? This is Jesus nailed it to the cross. Now, just listen to how he flips every single idea on its head. Having disarmed the powers and authorities. Do you remember the real story? Is that what it looked like? It didn't look that way. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Dude, that is so big. Jesus Christ is the sinner. That's what's going on there. It's from 9 to 15. God is big. He's the fullness of the deity in bodily form. We thought he was being shamed and suffering and failed. He was making a public spectacle of the world through his sacrifice and nailing your sins to the cross. So that's the, okay, now we're back to the sermon. That's to the pattern is Jesus' center. And then now watch what he says in verse 16. Okay, this is the other half of the pattern. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regards to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. This is such an important line, a great line. He has lost connection with the head. 
This is what it looks like in the church. In the church, it's, it's people who know the story, receive the story, believe the story, but they've chosen a different section of the book and put that first. And in doing so, they've lost connection with the head. Some generic examples. People who have a Christian hobby that they just can't get past. That's just not Jesus. End times. People who have their, everything they read or see has to do with when Jesus is coming again lost connection with the head. Christ is about how we live our lives now, not about figuring out when he's coming back. Someone who goes from congregation to congregation with some kind of spiritual agenda to change a church. You know, in the, in the 90s, 80s and 90s, there was uh, the agenda of Christian feminism that was kind of going from evangelical church to evangelical church just to fix them. They've lost connection with the head. We don't walk into God's house with an agenda and then make theology bow to it. I'm giving examples, so, you know, maybe I'll push somebody in the wrong way. You know, um, in in our fellowship, you could have someone coming in with kind of Holy Ghost power theology, And their whole goal is to change the way that worship looks in this fellowship. The purpose of gathering is to bow to Jesus Christ. And he shows himself through his spirit in his own way. That's how, that's just examples on how we get it. I'll give you a few just generic ways that we get things out of center. Because it can happen so easily in a church that is confessing Jesus. A church can place Jesus out of sinner when it places a personality or a leader in the sinner. So when, they, when that name becomes such a prominent driver behind the life of the church, that is a sign that the church is no longer centered on Christ. Christ does not need that person. And I guarantee you Satan celebrates a church that attaches itself to an earthly figure rather than Jesus Christ. Satan is not worried about a man. He was not not put on spectacle by a man. He was put on spectacle by Jesus. If we center our church, if we center our lives on Christ, we will raise good leaders rather than hire them. Another way that we get things out of balance is when a church centers itself on heritage or tradition. It can be prone to become a church that remembers what it looked like or what it was or what it did or what it ought to be. Its its past begins to dictate its future. The reality is, is if Jesus Christ is center in a church and working hard, what will end up happening is is, is you'll continually depart from tradition in small permissible ways because God is always doing a new thing. The Lord is not about what you did yesterday. The Lord is about making you new to do something tomorrow. He's about working in us now to do a new thing. If that's his way, we can't be a church that's anchored on a heritage. And I will say this. My suspicion and my experience is is that churches that are tradition-bound have a knack of forgetting what Jesus did and remembering what people did. It becomes an aggregate story of people. 
If we center our church on Christ, we will produce a heritage rather than remember one. Here's another way that churches get Christ out of the center is they place in the center a cause. Hunger, poverty, marriage, our nation, a building campaign, the city, some kind of injustice that becomes the center idea. The treasures of Jesus, the treasures of the scriptures are not understood through a cause. They're understood through Jesus. And when we, when we do this, when we make a cause, feed the poor, and you give someone a meal, you're not, we're not saving them. We're not doing anything of any lasting value there. I'm not saying that God is against it. I'm saying it's not center to who we are. I spent a semester at the Naval Academy. This is, uh, I think this illustrates it. Um, we had a swimming class we had to take. You had to swim a mile in your uniform. You put on your uniform, and you, have, you know, in case they, a ship sinks, is their thought. You have to go swim a mile. And if you wanted to validate the class, you had to swim a mile in under 40 minutes to get out of the class and not have to go every other day and swim for 40 minutes. So, of course, I validated it because I was Air Force and we're better than the Navy. So, <laughs> I validated it. But nonetheless, nonetheless, there's, there's a joke. It was a joke among midshipmen on how do you, how do you know a Naval Academy grad? And the, and the answer was, well, when the ship sinks, they're the ones who drowned 40 minutes after everybody else. <laughs> and the, the point is, when we give, if the cause is feeding someone a meal, I got a newsflash, they still die. We didn't just give them anything of lasting value. They still die. It's when we place something other than Christ at the center, all we're doing is ensuring that people die a little bit later rather than live forever in Jesus Christ. That has to be center. All right, here's one last, one last temptation to move Jesus out of the center. We're tempted sometimes to move Christ out of the center and in doing so to place the community in the center. We want, so often, we want to be a church that is around the community, all the community. I mean this church community, this wonderful community. We become this community church, and we talk about community this and community that, and all of these things, all of these things are good. All of these, these ideas are good. They just should not be central. And you know what happens when the community becomes the center idea of the church? It also becomes the norming idea of the church. In other words, every community, no matter what it is, ends up establishing normative ways that we ought to look and act and sound and be. And when the community is the center, it dictates the norms. And so that instead of people coming to church who are being transformed by Jesus to be something that they are not currently, they come to church and they conform to what a room looks like. So... We become a place where people need to look a certain way and you need to be happy because we're a community and you, need to, you can't have anything wrong with you because we're a community. So what ends up happening to churches that have placed the community in the center is they extinguish the ability to be honest about our ugliness, which is the way that Jesus works in us is for us to be honest about our ugliness. But we say, well, we're about our community and, and we're a beautiful community of smiles. And so that becomes the norm. And so instead of transforming into who Christ wants us to be, we conform to what the room looks like. And I'll say this, whenever anything is community-driven, it will fold on truth in two seconds because it's, they don't want to lose their community. 
if we center ourselves on Christ, we will be a people rooted in the Lord, not just a people feeling a room. So these are just some examples. God has called us not simply to receive the word, but to receive the word and to understand it through Christ. We're Christ-centered as we understand the word. And in doing so, that's what ensures and enables us to become a people who are firmly rooted in him and grow in him to become the kind of people he wants us to be. Now, I want to... So there's the truth of Scripture. Now, very practically, how does that equal uh, these tenets? Well, the first one is pretty understandable. We're a Christ-centered community that... Um, is beneath the authority of the Bible. But the second one, we, are, we share the same theology, and we are a Southern Baptist in association. If you have, you should have, um, I hope you got in your hands, the Baptist faith and message. This Sunday, instead of a normal bulletin, you receive the Baptist faith and message. That is, if you went to the website, that's essentially what you would see, is this is the theological position of our denomination. That's what it is. Now, there are several reasons we're Southern Baptists, but the primary reasons is theologically, what you see before you, we believe is good, healthy theology. And missionally, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, we are Southern Baptists also because of our missional perspective on how to reach the nations for Jesus. Those two reasons draw us to this. But, but this morning, just about the theology of it, the, the Baptist faith and message is before you, and it is good. Like, if we're going to start step way, 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 way back and say, okay, we want to be Christ-centered. And we want to be, we want to, through Christ, understand the mysteries and all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. It would seem sensible to us that we would not want to do that all by ourselves. Like there is, just let me derive denominations for us real quickly. There is helpfulness in, in partnering with another community of faith especially around theology, caring for theology. Denominations are essentially groups of churches that together shepherd beneath the same theology. And that's what we are, is we've found a value in that. If you think of it this way, it's it's almost arrogant to want to be just a lone church, ruggedly defending the gospel all by yourself. That is, I would be tempted to say to a church like that, it doesn't sound like Christ is in the center. The same Christ who prays to the Lord in John 15, Father, may those who come after me be one in you as I am in you, and may they be united. It seems like something else is in the center of a church that would just say, well, we got it all by ourselves. In fact, if you think about it, have you ever seen a picture of a lone tree that, like growing in North Scotland that's blown? You see this? That's what it would end up being if we were all by ourselves, is no matter how strong you are, the same false idea that nails on the door, knocks on the door every single day will eventually shape the church. When I was in uh, uh, Williamsburg, uh, I got a book on, on how they used to lumber, lumber wood for, you know, to build a house or to build furniture. And when the guy would go out, when the gentleman would go out to select a tree to cut down, he would never chop down a tree at the edge of the forest. I thought they would have chopped, chopped down the first tree you get to. Why not start at the front and work your way in? But you wouldn't do that. And there were several reasons. One, around the perimeter of the woods is where all the briars and thorns and thistles are. It's just hard to get in there and work. It's frustrating and it's, it's annoying. 
Whereas beneath the canopy in the interior of the woods, it's clear underneath. You can just walk right up to a trunk and go to work. That's the first reason. And the second reason is all the trees in the perimeter of the woods, they bend because they can get an unfair share of sunlight. So they lean. And so what you end up happening, you could cut down a big tree, but it's not straight lumber. All the boards you would cut would be prone to lean and bend and warp. So where they go to get the straightest trees, they go deep into the interior of the woods where the only way the trees survive and grow is by growing perfectly straight up because they're reaching for the sun and that's where the light is and that's where they chop their trees down. That's essentially the idea behind, the loose idea behind a denomination is that we can place our community in the interior of churches. We have something like the Baptist Faith and Message, which by the way is good. I encourage you to read it. You'll walk away going, You'll feel more theologically respectable. You know, you will be like, I am Baptist. I don't know if you'll do that, but you, you get the idea. You'll feel like you, there's, there's, it's good. It's good theology. I believe the Baptist faith and message is open-handed in the right places, and I believe it's tight-fisted in the right places. I think it knows what's important. And to the effect where it says, even of itself, it says the Baptist faith and message is not above Scripture. It is beneath Scripture. Also, it says the Baptist faith and message is not above the church. It's for the church. In those cases, I think, man, this is solid work. And it also has a lot of good scripture there for you. But by partnering in a denomination, what we do is we place ourselves in the woods. One other thing, if we begin to draw that idea closer and we begin to think about the Grove, right? This idea of our campus and the downtown campus and a future campus or future campuses is us working collectively around and shepherding one another in the gospel, shepherding one another towards a common theology and towards a Christ-centered submission to Scripture. So much more can be done and cared for as multiple communities. Think of it this way. Can you imagine us sending those 40 people downtown that went downtown in October and saying to them, like, good luck. Like, man, I bet you it's theologically brutal down there. Whew. Let us know how that goes. Like, that is, uh, that seems antithetical to God's heart. When we could say, Let's remain, let's continue to hold hands on theology so that when someone pushes and leans against that, that wall of your church, we can help push back and keep you safe. Likewise, so that's the way that we help them. Here's a way that they will help us over time. And it's just nice to have a, a deeply rooted tree when you're planting another one near it. But likewise, there's a benefit from the fact that over time, they will call up to us and say, you know, that thing you call theology, it probably is tradition. Like, be, be slow to call everything theology. Because the longer you're around, the more you assume that the way you do it is right. There's just a gain in that. There's a gain in having a brother or a sister who can see you change. Because we don't see ourselves grow and change. It's a gain to have a sibling to say, you, know, you, you talk different now that you came back from college. It's valuable when someone can see one community slipping and call them out on it. That's our hope. You know, if it's true for the church, it's true for the individual. Like, you cannot have a a vibrant life in, in the Lord unless it is anchored in Christ. And you cannot have a vibrant, 
experience with the Lord anchored in Christ all by yourself. You'll be like a, a, a seed planted that shoots up and then is strangled down. Right? The Lord is intended for us to be planted in the center of the woods and shepherded by others. Amen. Thank you. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, we're trying to do this well and right by you, and as we, as we expose uh, the architecture of this, of our broader church, Lord, I pray that your word would um, bless it and shape it. Father, I pray that each, each person here would um, see and understand that these truths, when they're as true as they are at the level of the church, um, those truths trickle down into our own lives. I lift up, Lord, the Christian that has tried to keep you in the center um, day in and day out, but has done it by themselves, Lord. And I pray that you would gently and caringly pull them into the woods, Lord, and give them a respite. Um, through Christian friendship. Lord, and I lift up those here who, who know about you and claim all the right things about you but may have put something else in the center, Lord. Maybe it's, um, maybe they've been worshiping their children or a spouse even. Or maybe they've, their, their focus has just been off. That, uh, um, maybe they, they've been living a, a world, a secular worldview, um, but one that is somehow friendly to the name of Jesus, um, as long as they don't believe it too much, Lord. We just pray against all, all the parasitical ideas that would attach themselves to our lives. Father, expose those things in us and through our friends here, Lord, so that we might be rooted and built up in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.